Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life as a, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. The world of finance has been known to elicit a myriad of emotional reactions. To some, it can provoke feelings of elation and thrill, while others teeter more on the side of confusion, angst, or tension. The mere dynamics of how it operates plays into much of this emotional reaction. Its ability to produce involuntary reactions surely comes from some of the intrinsic elements embedded within the financial sector. Think speed of transactions, complexities in evaluating and understanding options, or even the consequences of said actions. Not to mention, the industry has a certain penchant for constantly reinventing itself to reflect modern economic values, ideals, and theory. Now, all this adds up to this notion of finance being a highly charged construct. The role and profession of those who immerse themselves into it all has arguably evolved to the point that a high degree of sophistication is required as far as know-how and general knowledge. On today's show, we have a guest who has been passionately operating and providing service within the financial sector for years. His insights as to what it is, will be, and could be will undoubtedly hold interest for those looking to better understand the industry and work associated with it. Welcome to the show. So Mark Sheard is an equity portfolio manager at Van City Investment Management, an asset management firm owned by Van City Credit Union, which is one of the largest credit unions on the West Coast of Canada and is known for its focus on socially responsible investing. It was also the first Canadian asset manager to sign on to the UN principles for responsible investing. Mark joined Van City in April 2021 and was brought on to lead the equity team, which manages three different public equity portfolios, including a global, Canadian, and income-focused fund. But he's been in the financial industry for more than 15 years and previously spent over eight years at British Columbia Investment Management Corporation, which is the pension fund for British Columbia. Mark has been passionate about investing since he was a teenager, and he was always fascinated with the stock market and enjoyed reading about successful entrepreneurs and would often spend hours researching companies and management teams that built them. Now, he didn't go directly into finance after school. Rather, Mark spent some time traveling the world and giving his time to ecologically-based volunteer work. However, this is not to say that his passion for investing dissipated. It was rather the opposite. His life experiences crystallized his desire to finally take the plunge and find a job in the world of finance. This career journey started in Toronto, Canada, but eventually led him to Victoria, BC on Vancouver Island. His current role at Van City is his most exciting, however, as he's been able to marry his values with his passion as Van City's investments are all socially responsible with a focus on both delivering competitive returns for clients and making a positive impact on the world. So with all that stated, Mark, it's great to have you on. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Appreciate the invitation and happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it. Strange enough, we're about almost 50 episodes in and I've yet to to cover anyone within your field within finance. So yeah, we're well overdue and uh, I couldn't think of a better guest to, to have on to explore it all with. So why don't we? Uh, I do have this first segment lined up, and it's something called Coloring Wikipedia. And basically, as my listeners would know, I just kind of dive into the the guest profession by reading off a definition of what they do according to Wikipedia. Now, I like to do it for a few reasons. You know, one, it brings everybody up to speed on what the profession is all about. And then two, at times, Wikipedia is on point and they nail it. And other times, they just kind of miss it. They miss some really critical elements of what that job is. 
And then thirdly, too, I think it's interesting because, you know, you and I could hold the same position, but I think over the course of time, we put our own stamp on what the job is and how we own the job itself. So it's just a nice point to, uh, to get things started. So I do have you down here for portfolio manager. And perhaps after I read that off, uh, you just comment. Does it sound good? Sure. Sounds good. All right. Here we go. Portfolio manager. A portfolio manager or PM is a professional responsible for making investment decisions and carrying out investment activities on behalf of vested individuals or institutions. Clients invest their money into the PM's investment policy for future growth, such as retirement funds, endowment funds, or education funds. PMs work with a team of analysts and researchers and are responsible for establishing an investment strategy, selecting appropriate investments, and allocating each investment property towards an investment fund or asset management vehicle. There it is, a bit wordy, but uh, first impressions, what do you think of that, Mark? To be honest, it's actually a pretty good description, although oh. it really makes me think that the role is quite boring when you read it out. <laughs> but. <laughs> It's it's pretty spot on. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, like you know, if you're a portfolio manager, uh, you know, running equity funds, what you're trying to do is find you know good investment returns for your clients, and obviously, your clients can run across a pretty broad spectrum. Um, yeah. You know, at, at Fan City Investment Management, we have a lot of what's called retail clients, so individuals like yourself or me that you know go into the credit union and want to you know invest their savings for you know generally for their retirement but of course institutions also invest their money so it could be a nonprofit or or an endowment and and, and generally a portfolio manager will have a, a team of people working with them right so the way i see it is we're all analysts or pms we're all looking for you know uh, ideas that we can ideas that we can add into our funds that can help improve our our returns and give our clients you know that kind of competitive return so i'd say for wikipedia that's actually not a bad description i find they usually miss more than they hit but in this case i think they did quite well nice nice all right well i got this other question too within the segment here and it's playing off this stereotype i suppose if you will maybe for some maybe not for everyone but i think for some people might sort of consider you know a a pm's job is sort of like this lone wolf you know individual who's working on his or her own you know, analyzing options and then making these investment decisions. But intellectually speaking, like I know that's not the case. Of course, you have, as the definition alludes to, there's researchers, there's people around you, you have teams that you're working with. Maybe that side of the of what the job is and and the periphery surrounding you know the job outside of just the pure investing. Maybe you could comment on that a little bit too. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So obviously, at each, at each investment management firm, it, it's a little bit different, of course, of how they set up the team, but. I would say it is more rare that it's one individual that's making all the decisions. You know, kind of to your point, it's it's generally a team of analysts, researchers, you know, PMs, APMs, et cetera, that that work collectively as one again to find the best idea, right? You don't just want you know one person's idea. And and I think the one thing that I found personally is that I don't I find I, I get better returns when I'm able to work with other people and use them as sounding boards. You know, like what we're doing, it's not black and white, right? We're trying to look into the future. We're investing in companies where, you know, yeah, you can push the probabilities in your favor, but it doesn't mean you're going to know everything. You know, things come out of the woodwork that that get in the way of your of your returns that you can never predict or account for. So what helps is to kind of have someone almost play a devil's advocate to you. So I, I really enjoy that type of relationship with my team. And there's, I think there's seven of us overall. So when someone 
comes with a new investment idea and they bring it to the whole team generally. And what we try to do is tear it apart a little bit, right? Yeah. And you can't do that when you're on your own. I mean, we all have egos, we all have biases. And if you don't have somebody pushing back on you and forcing you to think through this, you can often just overlook those, which of course is going to be to the detriment of your investment returns. So a lot of friends, of course, at other investment management firms and the majority of them, but not all, majority of them work as part of a team. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, there are one or two people that it is just them. And they generally come to the conclusion that they prefer that because in the past worked on a team and they it just didn't fit with their personality, perhaps, you know. So there are there are some successful investment managers out there where it is really just one person. But more often than not, what you see is like a Warren Buffett and a Charlie Munger style relationship where you know there's two people that are pushing each other, helping each other, acting as sounding boards. And of course, in most cases, it's it's much more than just two. Mm, mm. Oh, that's great insight. Yeah, I think it's probably some of that stereotype maybe in film or entertainment where it sort of pushes that that one sort of vision forward. But yeah, it certainly makes sense you know, what you were speaking of there, you know, having those sounding boards in, in essence and just exchanging ideas. Things are moving rapidly, obviously, and changing. I think you're right. There is that stereotype. And I think a lot of it is because like most of our day is sitting kind of alone and reading, <laughs> you know, like out of you know, out of the the ten hours or whatever it happens to be that day, probably nine hours of it is just sitting by yourself and reading. Yeah. yeah. But it's that it's that time when you need somebody to kind of act as a bit of a devil's advocate or give you feedback and come at it without that bias. That's, I mean, that's just worth its weight in gold. Yeah, I've got one other maybe stereotype here too that there is a bit of maybe ego sometimes within the industry. People feeling that they know exactly what's going on. And again, the, the, this, this stereotype isn't based on any factual, you know, sort of evidence, obviously. I mean, there's, there's egos everywhere, but maybe you can speak to yeah. that point a little bit too. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, to your point, I think it is across industries, but perhaps within this industry, it's, it's a little bit more of a problem. And obviously books such as Liar's Poker or The Wolf of Wall Street, which has turned into a, a movie, have, have right. perpetuated that belief too. So I would say that like overall, like, yes, you're correct. There's a lot of people, I think, with with egos that get into this business. I mean, for the most part, it, it is a, a fairly well-rewarded um, industry. You know, you get paid well, you have some stature, and you know, you're obviously dealing with money. So I think it does attract a certain type of personality. However, I, I do believe that there's kind of that... Uh, that Wall Street type of person, which goes back to what you see from the movie, perhaps Wall Street. <laughs> and there's the kind of the rest of us, I guess, that are outside of that and, you know, working right. across the globe. And, you know, I, I would say for us, the draw isn't, you know, the, you know, the, the fiscal rewards. It, it really is that ability to just constantly learn and, and to, you know, we're, we're all very curious people. I would say that's probably the one commonality across across the industry is we just love to learn and we're curious about everything. So being able to scratch that itch is probably the biggest reward, but, you know, kind of back to your original question, Chris, I mean, like we all have egos, like it's just part of being human, right? So what's really necessary in this business. And again, in other businesses and industries as well is, is to minimize that ego as much as possible. Like for myself, I'm the portfolio manager. There's again, a team of about seven of us. If somebody else comes to me with an idea or if somebody comes to me that like with pushback against one of my ideas, I have to keep my ego down. I have to make sure again, that I'm getting to the best idea and not my idea. 
and, and it's not easy, right? Like you don't want to look human nature empty. sometimes, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you don't want to look or feel stupid, especially when you're, you know, you're, you're the manager, but I mean, that's a ridiculous way to think because again, the future is uncertain and we're, we're dealing with, with probabilities here. So I was talking to uh, another asset manager, a friend of mine, and he's a little bit older than me and has more experience and, you know, very successful. And every year he has an ego coach come in and to help him ensure that he's keeping his ego down and that he's allowing for the whole team to have the ability to, to build the best portfolio as, a, as opposed to his own portfolio. So I thought that was really insightful. You know, somebody wow, that, yeah. somebody that every single year has done that. I think he said he's done it for eight or nine years, but I, I might be misremembering, but it's, it's been more than a couple. I had no idea such a thing existed. I thought that was a bit of a silly question, to be honest. I was a bit embarrassed <laughs> to ask it, but now yeah. after like pulling that out or, you know, you sharing that, that uh, yeah, that's really that's quite fascinating, actually. That, that such a thing exists. I it's, mean, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, it really is probably one of the biggest things that we have to worry about here. Like, you have something that's called a commitment bias, right? So, say I go out there and I say, "Listen, we want to buy shares of Nike." Okay, so we go, we we take a position, we all decide yes, but it's it's coming primarily for me. Well, maybe the next quarter or six months down the road, something negative happens, and shares get hit hard. And our thesis perhaps breaks, something structural occurs. I'm my first reaction is to defend Nike and to defend that investment because I'm the person that decided to put our clients' money into that company. But that's that's not how we should think at all. It's we, we like to say, and I can't remember who I stole this off of, but it's strong convictions, weakly held. As soon as your thesis is broken, you have to get out and you can't be ashamed. I mean, it's a very humbling industry. You're you're constantly being scored, right? The the stock market is you know, for the most part, always open, especially when you're running a, a global portfolio. And so we're always trying to to combat that and make sure that it's a team idea as opposed to, you know, one person's idea. So they don't feel like they have to commit to it and they don't, you know, dig their their feet in. Mm. No, I think that's really insightful. You shared a lot of points that I think probably is going to give people a really good idea, kind of an overview of what, you know, the job is and what it's not perhaps as well. So yeah, maybe if we skip on over into a new segment here, Mark, I've got something called a Q&A discovery, and we just kind of continue this back and forth. And this first question, I kind of want to dive into a bit of your backstory here. And as I noted off the top, you know, you didn't jump into the finance industry, you know, right out of the gate. In fact, you spent some time traveling, you know, doing some volunteering. And I'd be curious to know about how some of those early experiences might have directed you or led you, whether it was conscious or subconsciously towards where you ended up present day. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I think my I think my background is a bit more circuitous, I guess, than most people. It, it, it wasn't a direct line by by any stretch. Um, you know, as you pointed out, after I graduated, I I did some traveling. I worked at various jobs. I mean, I in my twenties, I probably had, or at least from twenty to like twenty six, I probably had like I don't know a dozen different jobs, right? And none of them, none of them really that great, I guess, or fiscally rewarding. <laughs> so it's. You know, I think after I graduated, I knew I enjoyed investing. I liked the idea of it, but to be honest, it wasn't it wasn't grabbing me because what I had learned in university from my finance classes, I didn't find them that interesting. I, I thought they were I thought I learned some things here and there, but it wasn't exactly grabbing at me. So I didn't jump right into into the industry. Instead, I decided, like a lot of people do, I decided to kind of spend those early years where you don't have much money, but you have a lot of time. Yeah. You know, spend them kind of traveling around and and seeing different parts of the world and, and meeting different different people. And 
And, you know, I don't regret it at all. I, you know, it's still some of the, some of the best years of my life and still have some friends from those, those travels in that time. But, you know, eventually what happened was, you know, I started, I, I discovered Warren Buffett and I started reading a lot about him and his investment process. And I realized that, Hey, what I was learning in, in finance classes at university, that's actually not the only way to invest. There's this mm -hmm. whole other world called value investing that, that he learned from Benjamin Graham that it really kind of jumped out at me, you know? So at some point during those years, when I was, when I was traveling around, I started reading more and more about Warren Buffett. And to be honest, it's a pretty common refrain for most, most investors. Once they find Buffett, they, right. they kind of see the light, you know? And of yeah. course he's a, he's a household name. I think anybody knows who he is now, but what I would say kind of uh, back to your question is, you know, that, that, time of my life when I was traveling around, when I was kind of experiencing all these different places and, and meeting all these different people, it, it almost forms who you are. And it gives you more of a, an understanding of different cultures an understanding of different geographies, understanding of, you know, like everything isn't just what I learned in my, you know, my early years or my teens where, you know, I think like you, I just lived in one town up until I was 18 and went to university. So you get, you get a very myopic view of the world. One of my first tasks when I got into this industry was to actually look at investments in Japan. And so I didn't have, I'd never been to Japan at that point. So what did I do? I started reaching out to people that that had been there. I remember actually speaking with you about, about a, a specific industry at one point about the advertising industry. Mm -hmm. And that that helps form your view and helps you understand yeah. like what it's like over there and why you have to kind of step into their shoes and get a, a, an understanding of their culture and their background. Yeah. And it, it really, it just makes you a, a better investor overall because you're sitting at your desk, you know, sitting here in Western Canada, reading about Japan and just reading Japanese financial statements, as opposed to talking to people who have lived there, worked there, been there. And of course, I, I've since been there, which is very eye-opening. It, it just makes you such a, a better and more fulsome investor well, overall. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so too. I think that's well said. I think it's a, probably a misconception for any line of work, but especially within yours too, that say the financial industry is only about finance. It's, it's you know blatantly false. You know, you have social cultural elements, things that you were just speaking of. That if you're not fully you know understanding some of those elements, how are you going to understand the markets that are taking shape in those in those areas themselves and what could be coming down the line based on some of the values that they hold there? So that's a really good point, I think, and uh, one worth mentioning. Really quickly, too, I understand that some of those activities before you know sinking yourself into finance were ecologically based and doing some volunteer work on that side of things. Maybe you could comment on that a little bit, too. Was there? Yeah, no, that's right. I worked. Uh, so I was in Banff, Alberta. Oh, I worked in the ski hills in the winter. And in the summer, I worked for a nonprofit organization called Friends of Banff Park. You know, and, and their their main kind of um, their main focus was to help teach uh, about you know living in an area where it is where there are a lot of uh, bears and you have to understand how to kind of share the space and you know just how to cohabitate nature with you know with yeah. with bears specifically so it, it was an interesting job and uh, I actually did the accounting <laughs> for the company so I wasn't really that involved in the front of line work but you know I've always kind of I've always had more of this um I don't know feeling that I wanted to that I guess my values are more aligned with a lot of what you know companies like this are doing. A lot of nonprofits are doing. Like I am, I am more, I think, aligned with social justice in general and that those ideas. And so, 
it's always kind of drawn me towards companies like that. And that's why I really like working at Van City too, right? It's been able yeah. to to marry my initial interests, what I like to do for my job, which of course is investing with my values. And so I've, I've always been kind of drawn to those sorts of, of uh, careers. Yeah, yeah. I found that really interesting when I was researching, you know, the company that you work for, you know, Van City Investment Management. And in terms of it being the first Canadian asset manager to sign on to this UN principles for responsible investing. And as someone who's firmly entrenched outside of that industry, I had no idea such a thing existed, to be frank. And I'm not sure, maybe, maybe that's just me, but uh, you you could share a little bit more about what that is. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of talk about it at a very high level. I won't go yeah. too in-depth, but but really what the UNPRI is, it's a set of uh, six principles that signatories, which are, I think, mostly, if not all, asset managers, they confirm that they're going to adhere to. And I won't go into each of the, the principles, but the main purpose really is to uh, place a focus within you know, with the investment within our investment process for each of these asset managers on socially responsible investing. So And you do that through incorporating ESG issues, which of course stands for environmental, social, and governance. And you really just want to push that to the forefronts of how we're investing with the goal of building a more uh, sustainable global financial system. Mm -hmm. You know, and for us at at VCIM, I mean, we believe that socially responsible investing involves, you know, choosing and managing investments based in part on how those companies impact people and the planet, you know, and how they they manage their their businesses and operations. So, as opposed to maybe other asset managers, where it's purely, you know, thinking about fundamentals such as you know companies' balance sheets, income statements, um, or doing top down where you incorporate you know macroeconomic mm-hmm. uh, forecasts. You know, we're trying to put ESG as as a big part of our of our investment process and put it at, at the forefront of, of everything that we how, do. How do you do that? I mean, how does that manifest itself within the day-to-day, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter sort of thing? Is it like through meetings that it's discussed, that's constantly on the table, or is it, you know, there are certain strategies? Of course, you, you don't have to share too, yeah. too much about this if it's internal and whatnot, but just a, a rough idea of how that manifests itself within, you know, the workplace, or is it is it top-of-mind awareness constantly in conversations, meetings? Maybe you could comment on that a little bit. Yeah. So we do have an ESG internal team that helps us out a lot. So I'm on the equity team and we are, so we're more based around the idea of, um, you know, fundamental analysis, Mm -hmm. or we have an ESG team that helps us incorporate our guidelines in terms of how we view ESG uh, within every company that we look at. So we do have negative screens that we use. So we won't invest in certain industries like fossil fuel, tobacco, gambling, adult entertainment, et cetera. But we also use positive screening tools as well. So we're looking for companies that, you know, focus on, say, minimizing their their carbon footprint, or perhaps from a social standpoint, you know, ones that um, have a very strong relationship with their employee workforce or any of their stakeholders, including, say, their suppliers, and that have very good, uh, very strong governance structure in place. So we have a a general set of guidelines that we follow, but we also, again, use some negative screening to just say, okay, we're not going to invest in these certain industries. And, and we'll also utilize engagement to help uh, the companies that we invest and help them improve their ESG. So we will go out to them, we'll speak with them and try to push them to to improve upon you know one of those metrics. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, I think that clears things up. It's interesting in, in running this program for, for a little while now, 
you know, diving into guest backgrounds and whatnot, you can sometimes see, you can connect these dots up of where they were earlier in their careers before they even launched themselves into the present day work. And you kind of see how it all sort of lines up. And maybe here I, I could be, you know, going out there a little bit too far, but I think it would seem to align, you know, in some of your experiences before heading into the finance industry, you're just speaking of, I, I guess, that work in Banff, Alberta, you know, and some of the ecologically minded activities or interests that you had at that time perhaps led you to this company right now? Like, was this something that was on your radar that like, if you're going to do this, this is the type of company that ultimately you wanted to end up working for? Is that, am I too far off there? Or am I... Yeah, I would say, I'd say I, I didn't really know that a place like Van City existed until a friend of mine who I worked with prior came over to Van City and he kind of told me. So I don't know if I really had it ever on my radar, but once I knew that it existed, yeah, it was I was very intrigued by it. Again, the ability to kind of marry your your values with your work. I mean, it's it's very rare that you can that you can do that. So once I found out that there was an investment firm that kind of thought this way and invested this way, it was very intriguing to me. So I'm, I'm now that I'm here, I'm I'm quite happy to be able to be a part of yeah. it too. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, in in researching for this, I, I had no idea. I had no idea like such things existed. I just assumed that you know, like a capitalistic sort of like values of maximizing wealth or you know it's more or less mutually exclusive to sort of some of these notions of social responsibility like I didn't of course it makes sense now again intellectually speaking that you know this is the day and age that we live in and I think successful mm -hmm. firms kind of have to you know be aware of these things and uh, follow along with the way the trends and within society are going and people don't want to invest in companies that are going to be not serving the needs of the planet moving forward so it does make sense when you do think about it. Yeah, it was interesting to, to find out that there are companies that are really placing a, a huge degree of emphasis on that. And like you said, with some of these negative and positive screenings are, are trying to make a difference. So Yeah, and I think if you think about it from, say, an environmental standpoint, I think we all understand the risk that we're in right now in terms of climate change, right? So yeah. so who has the biggest impact on this outside of governments? It's corporations. I mean, yeah. It's these large corporations. They're obviously some of the largest emitters of, of carbon. And so you know, as investors in these companies, we're shareholders, we own pieces of these companies. So we're able to help direct change. And I think it's, I think it's something that's becoming more and more common when you talk to investment managers, Van City is one of the, the earliest in Canada to really take this approach. And they're, you know, they've always kind of been at the forefront of it, but it's becoming, you know, a more common and serious topic, to be honest, but it, it's, it's our ability to help direct this change that I think could really you know, push us forward and, and help against the fight uh, in terms of climate change. So the question here, in terms of this line of work, and I think you've already alluded to this once, but this aspect of just learning, you know, constantly learning, whether it's about new businesses, new models, new possibilities, you know, studying the markets, how it's evolving, you know, maybe you could speak to that point and the appeal of working within that industry specific to, to that ideal of just constantly being on your toes and, and learning and curiosity and everything else. Maybe we could return to that point really quickly. I'd love to, to hear a little bit more on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think everybody understands, or at least has heard of the power of say compounding interest or compounding your money where it, it grows upon itself and over time becomes, you know, a, a much, much larger pile of money. And so we, we, we see the same thing in terms of learning and knowledge. It's compounding our knowledge that makes us better investors because we're always looking across sectors. We're always looking across industries. We're looking at a variety of different companies. You know, we're, we're what we call uh, generalists. So we don't specialize in any one sector. At some firms, they will have uh, their team set up as specialists. So 
you know, one person looks at, say, real estate, another looks at financials. The way we're set up is generalists. So we're looking across for the best opportunities. So, you know, we don't want to really restrict ourselves to just one area. If we think that the best opportunities happen to be in companies that fall under the financial sectors, we're okay with that. And so when you're a generalist, you're always jumping across. So you can't rely on one industry to give you a knowledge across each of them. You have to have knowledge across almost every single industry. And the only way to do that is to build up your knowledge and your learning over time. I mean, the best, I'd say the best portfolio managers or analysts, uh, I think those terms, to be honest, are interchangeable, but you know, the best the best investors in general, they tend to have, it's almost like a, a mental model for exactly what they're looking for in each type of industry. And that's just built up over over time with through experience, looking at different types of companies. And so you know, we won't necessarily just be reading financial statements of our companies. Of course, we spend a lot of time doing that. We'll be reading books across different disciplines. And again, some of, some of the best investors I ever talked to, their background isn't even in finance. You know, their undergrad or graduate degrees were in perhaps social sciences because they have more of a holistic view of the world. And it's just really important when you're investing. You you can't have your blinders on. You you have to be able to to jump around. And you know, one day you're talking about a technology company, and the next day you're talking about a company that I don't know that makes uh, clothing, right? And and so you. So you need to be able to have an understanding of each of these different industries. And, and again, the, the people, I, I tell the team this, but the best thing you can do when you learn about industry is to go out there, talk to people, talk to uh, the customers of the products or the services that the company is selling, talk to uh, former employees or current employees. That's a really good way of gaining information. But you have to get out there and, and kind of learn from other people out in the real world as opposed to just yeah. sitting at your desk. So it's just... I mean, that's the best part about my job. It's just you're always learning. You're always gaining some new knowledge every single day. And it's it's fantastic. Yeah. To some, they might you know, maybe interpret that as a bit of a challenge or a difficult point. But also, you know, on the other hand, the kind of way that the view that I'm, you know, I'm assuming that you're taking in is, is that it is you know, a rewarding aspect to it all, that you are constantly learning. And, you know, in most professions, if you can find that, you know, that's the gold, right? That is the gold. That's what keeps it fresh. It yeah. keeps it interesting. And I really like that point, too, of returning to that notion of this type of work that you're doing isn't strictly just the the P&Ls, <laughs> studying that within companies. That's right. It's the social trends. It's some of the other things that are going on. If you don't understand those elements, then how are you going to be predicting how a company is going to be evolving or shifting their own focus and their products and services? So it completely uh, makes sense in hearing it, but it's probably uh, something that somebody might overlook i suppose when they're just looking at the the type of work that an analyst such as yourself or a pm you know does so i think that's really yeah. really insightful yeah all right well i do have one last question in the segment mark and this one's a little bit more on the personal side of course there's going to be times i suppose in the line of work that you do where there's going to be some highs obviously you, you make the right decisions you know you you make your the clients happy you make your your own firm happy probably yourself too but also, on the other hand, there's going to be some moments there, some lows, I'd imagine, where things just, you know, they're not always going to go to plan. So here's the question. And like, what do you do to compartmentalize and your own emotional investments into all of this? Like, how do you keep yourself on an even keel with all of it? It's not easy. No, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, <laughs> it's a million dollar question, really. It, it really is. I mean, I would say that, you know, the, the best quality you can have when you're investing is, is in 
even temperament and your ability not to get too high when things are going well or too low when, when things aren't going well. Right. You know, market like we're having right now, it's a very difficult and volatile market. I mean, people's emotions are all over the place. And, you know, over the short term, the stock market is driven by people's emotions. It's more behavioral than anything, right? So, you know, it's something that I think, again, experience does help with. It's it's always easier when you've been there and done that. Now, each market is unique in its own way. Obviously, COVID from March 2020, that was that was unique and hopefully a one-time event. But there wasn't much to draw on there. But when you are able to look back at your own career and, and even read about past downturns, but there really is nothing like living it. You, know, you can read all you want about the 70s or the Great Depression in the 30s, but it, if you aren't there, you're just not going to have a full understanding. The one, the one thing that you can do, though, is you can pull on your own past experience and say, okay, it was difficult. There was a lot of times when you thought the whole world was going to collapse. But at the end of the day, the market wants to revert back to going up and to the right. You know, things tend to turn. It's, it's easier to be an optimist than a pessimist when you're investing. I mean, and when you look, one thing that helps us, I find, is when you're looking at individual companies, such as a market like this, where, you know, the market's down 20% plus in most markets across the globe. You're able to look at individual investments and, mm. and there's just the opportunities are amazing. Like there's some times like this is when people are really able to make life-changing investments because, you know, a lot of companies are selling for, for pennies on the dollar. And so when you're able to get back to the basics, the fundamentals and look at your investments and say, you know, I'm, I'm getting this company, which I think can grow at X over the next 10 plus years. It has a very strong management team, good balance sheet. There's nothing structurally wrong with it. It's just the market. And I'm paying its lowest valuation it's been at for 30 years. I mean, that just gives you a lot of confidence. And it actually gets you quite excited, to be honest. You know, I'm investing it at this price. I know in five years down the road, it's not going to be trading at this anymore. It's going to continue to compound its earnings. And and it's going to do quite well for us. But, you know, day to day, um, you know, the thing with investing is you're constantly being scored. You're constantly being graded. Again, the stock market somewhere is open for most of the day. And so you're always being given this constant feedback. And so we try to turn it off. You don't want to just stare at the blinking lights all day, the green and right. red. You, you have to get away from that or it will bias you. And, and I would say that the cardinal sin in investing is to change your process when things are going against you. Mm. You know, like if you're, if you invest in a certain manner, say you invest in companies that uh, we would call growth companies, so they tend to grow at a higher rate than the average company in the in the market. Um, that hasn't worked out so well right now. What's working out well now is what we call value investing, companies that tend to grow at a slower rate but trade at lower valuations. So oil and gas companies are doing well. If that isn't part of your process, you're going to be hurt this year. Yeah. But what tends to happen is people, they capitulate, say, oh, I can't take this anymore. And they switch. And what, of course, what happens is you switch at the worst possible time. So right. you have to keep your, you have to keep your process in mind and you have to keep your biases outside of it and not let your emotions get too, you know, too out of whack. Because that, if you do that, it's, well, it's a career killer. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. And that probably returns to that point too, to a certain degree of having a strong team around you, strong guidance mm-hmm. as well to remind you of some of these things. I suppose the, you know, the, the opposite could occur where if you don't have that strong team around you, who's encouraging you to make some of these less informed yes. decisions of switching around, it's also going to be quite detrimental, but yeah, uh, it's interesting. Well, that's, that's, that's actually a good point you make there, Chris, because there is one uh, portfolio manager. He, he's very well known, very successful, and he used to have an analyst working with him. 
And in, in 2008, during the great financial crisis, when things were looking the most dire, this analyst came in and said, I just sold all of my personal holdings, everything. I went fully cash. And he realized, he's like, I can't have somebody like that biasing me. I can't, yeah. I can't allow him to then scare me and make me sell our investments. So from then on, he's been a, a lone wolf to use your term mm-hmm. and it has worked alone and doesn't want to work with, uh, with anybody else. So he isn't biased by their, their emotions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I do want to shift over into a new segment here, Mark, and it's something called a water cooler story segment. And here I just ask guests to indulge listeners with the story related to their profession. So I'm eager to, to hear what you have for us today. Sure. Yeah. So I would say, kind of like I said earlier, most of my day is pretty boring. <laughs> you know, I'm at my desk, I'm on my computer, I'm reading, and maybe I'm going out and talking to people about some companies that we're looking at. But for the most part, it's it's not very exciting. You know, I've had people actually, you know, or junior people ask if they could shadow me, and I just tell them there's really no point, right? If you want to watch me <laughs> read, the book that's I'm fine. Reading. But, yeah, <laughs> just sit down right. It might be here. slightly awkward. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the one thing that happens, and we've had this happen a couple of times this year, just because of the market is, you know, one of your holdings has, you know, kind of blows up, you know. So, again, you're being constantly given this uh, uh, feedback of information, like your company is trading at $12.32 today, and then tomorrow it's trading at $11.50, you know. Yeah. And sometimes what happens is there's, and, and perhaps nothing has happened at all. In fact, most of the time, nothing material has happened at all. It's just the vagaries of the stock market and the emotions of, of investors. However, occasionally what happens is something material does happen and it's quite negative. And so we had one recently. I was actually on vacation with my family. Uh, we were out in Banff skiing last winter and I was at dinner and I was just checking my work phone and I noticed a dialogue between some of the team members talking about one of our holdings and it wasn't positive. <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh. And I checked. Wonderfully one of timed. Holdings. Yeah. And I checked and one of our holdings was down over 40%. And there was some material news out there that that did that was a structural change to our thesis. And, and so then what happens again, you have to be careful because you can get this commitment bias come in. You can say, oh no, it's fine. You know, everybody else is wrong. We're correct. But you know, if you go back to our what I originally said is, you know, strong convictions, weekly held, if something has changed in your thesis and everything is written out in black and white, so you can't get away from it as to why you invested in the company, mm-hmm. you have to sell it and move on. Yeah. You know, and, and it's it creates this emotional response, though. It's almost like the, the fight or flight response that, that we all have. And you have to make a decision. But at the same time, you're also trying not to allow your emotions to take over to either, you know, keep the investments, buy more or, or sell it. You're trying to, yeah. to stand back and just look purely at the facts. And so this is something where you're really earning your money, to be to be honest, because, yeah, because you can't really, I mean, I guess, you, I guess doing nothing is a decision, but you need to you need to have some reasoning behind why you're doing nothing. Yeah. And so it ends up taking over all of your time and taking all of your effort. And, you know, you have to make that decision again in a pretty emotionally charged environment. So, yeah. And, and what we tend to do is we try, we try to wait a day or two, you know, just like, okay, like, yes, maybe it'll go down a little bit more. If something is serious, like a, a break in, in ESG, our ESG thesis, then it's a no brainer. We're just going to, to sell it. Um, but if it's something that's, that's outside of that, it's more fundamental. It's not always easy to know, right? I mean, every great investment over its period, like every company that's been a hundred bagger, so it's gone up a hundred X since it was listed, they've all had some drawdowns at some point. And generally they're big drawdowns, 30 to 50%. I mean, everybody looks at Amazon and says, wow, look at that, you know? 
it went from, I can't remember what it's IPO'd at, but now I it's assume it's been in. this the whole way up, right? Just to Exactly. It's been straight up. But when you focus in on certain periods, there's massive drawdowns. I believe it's had three, three drawdowns of at least 50%. I'm pretty oh, wow. sure that's right, but it might be off. I think it was an early 2000 when it hit like a low of four or $5, you know, it wow. fell like 90% plus. So, you know, for, to be able to compound your returns, you have to be able to withstand these drawdowns. So it, there's all these conflicting emotions that, that are going on in your head and you're trying to deal with. I bet. Yeah. It's almost like it's a Royal rumble between the emotional, your emotional side and the analytical side. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, people know that you've like your clients know you invest in this company. I'm sure that a lot of them see what's happened. A lot of times it's in the news and then you make a decision and people are going to ask you about it one way or another. If the decision was correct or not, you're going to have questions about it yeah. usually for the next you know few years, to be honest. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Well, we are heading around the bend and we're heading into the last segment here, Mark. And it's something called the crystal ball segment. Usually here we're looking at trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And I thought it'd be interesting to kind of get a, a bird's eye look at your industry and what you're doing from the perspective of technology and the role it's playing or could be playing in the future. And I'm thinking along the lines of AI, perhaps how that's influencing and shaping the type of work that you do. And maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, so I think like a lot of other industries, it's definitely having an, an impact on us as well. You know, like I said earlier, what's, what we do is called fundamental analysis. Of course, we're looking from the bottom up and trying to find the best possible uh, investments for our, for our clients. However, there is a push towards what's called uh, quantitative investing. So what it's doing is it, it's generally using, using technology to improve upon returns. And as opposed to using a bottom-up fundamental approach, it uses quantitative metrics to score companies. And a lot of times it'll use tools such as uh, machine learning or web scraping to come to, you know, build the best kind of algorithm in order to, to improve upon returns. And so, you know, that's something that's been around for a little while, but I would say it's gaining more and more traction and it's becoming more and more sophisticated. And a lot of people, you know, will say that is the future. I, I don't agree. Although again, I am probably biased. Um, Why what is I, that? What would you say to that? Yeah, so so my belief is that as active investors, where we hold a small sample of the overall index and we try to to beat the index returns, um, what we want are inefficiencies in the market. If the market was perfectly efficient, like there's no point in doing what we do. I think this year itself proves that the market is definitely not efficient when prices are moving three to five percent on on one day with no real news. So. The way I see it is if the more people that push into this quantitative investing, the more people ignore the qualitative side of investing. And that for us is crucial. So that that to me means that there's going to create more inefficiencies. Like, for example, and this is part of our ESG approach, although to be honest, even firms that don't focus on ESG as part of their investment process should be focusing on this. Like if you think about the social side, so what is it that really drives the company forward? It's It's the employees. Yeah. Pretty much every company, it's the employees that are driving that company forward. So what happens when you have a relationship between you know, the C-level suite, the corporation, and the employees? You have high turnover, you have unsatisfied employees, and you have employees that aren't going to push the company forward, and they're not yeah. going to kind of row in the, in the same direction. And, and those type of companies, like they might do well over short time periods, but eventually that culture is going to come out. And culture eats strategy every day of the week. And this is not really something you can quantify. 
In fact, it's it's something that you need to learn over time when you invest in a company. And so to me, ignoring the qualitative side of investing and purely focusing on numbers, you're missing like, you know, half of the picture. And so mm-hmm. to me, that's just going to create more inefficiencies in the market as, as more and more funds are mm-hmm. you know, start to go that way, which allows us more opportunity to, to outperform. Mm, well said, well said. And I think, you know, in the course of this discussion, we've spoken about emotions and, you know, the analytical side and sometimes the battles there. And, and, and maybe to this point, we've spoken of emotions being maybe something that could be detrimental to, to an analyst. But within that vein of what you were just speaking of right there, like understanding the emotional side of it in terms of the companies, the, the employees and what you're speaking of right there, it, it is, it's, it's essential to understand that mm-hmm. to, to really get a good idea. And you're right. I mean, as far as AI and these, these scraping tools are, have evolved to this point, they're not there yet. They're not there yet. And there's going to be certain no. elements that are going to be missed. And like you said, that that's half of it right there. You know, the, the, the pure fundamentals of a company don't just run on the, or sit on the PL statements, right? There are these other elements right. that have to be looked at and considered. So I think that's, that's a really insightful sort of look at it all. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think for us as fundamental analysts too, like we can learn from a lot of what the quant funds are doing, you know? So mm-hmm. I think there are some of those tools that we can utilize to help improve our process. So I definitely wouldn't want to completely ignore it or anything no, like that. We, there's always new ideas out there that we can that we can steal to be honest. Integrate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Integrate's a much nicer term. <laughs> <laughs> well Mark, I mean I must say it's been you know just a really engaging talk and I've enjoyed it from start to finish. And quite frankly, we've just flown through and I feel like I you know go on all day and ask you a bunch more questions here. But I am conscious of your time and I do thank you immensely for uh, coming on the program and sharing all these you know, wonderful insights. No, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. And, and again, I think you're, what you're doing with your podcast is fantastic. I mean, for me, again, it's just going to be great to listen to all these different people from different careers and backgrounds and, and learn from them as well. So, so thank you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Well, for those interested in learning more about Mark and his work, you can find him on LinkedIn. Also, you can check him out at Van City Investment Management. And for reference, all this information will be included in the show notes. And if you like today's show, please be sure to share. I mean, it goes a long way. Uh, you can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And head on over to YouTube. Within the last year, I did launch a channel there where you can catch video conversations, uh, much like we had today with Mark. And then finally, don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. <laughs>